You know, for, for some, the Christmas season is, is difficult. Uh, but for most, we look forward to this time of year. And uh, I can tell just by listening to your fellowship that the buzz even sounds different than, than a regular, quote-unquote, regular Sunday. So we're excited. We're, we're caught up in the excitement. It, it is a wonderful reason to be excited. Uh, if the reason is Jesus. But we have all these other trappings that go with the Christmas season that make, make the season exciting as well. But we realize that at some point the decorations come down. And then the Christian life really begins. The daily grind of following Jesus and battling against the flesh and against the world. So this morning the message is, is um, aimed at believers... If we have visitors this morning, maybe you, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's for you as well. But you're going to hear maybe what others aren't hearing this Christmas season, which is what it truly means to follow Jesus and what it's going to cost. And you might find it surprising to hear from Jesus himself almost... Uh, evangelization strategy that seems contrary to what we're used to. It almost seems like he's getting people to not follow him. But what he's actually doing is getting people to stop and think and count the cost and consider what does it really mean to follow Jesus. So they're not just caught up in the hoopla. He had crowds following him at this time. Uh, he's done miracles. He's become a celebrity, as it were. He has gone toe-to-toe with the religious leaders. People see a crowd and they get drawn to a crowd, right? The looky-loos. What's going on? What's the buzz? What's he going to do next? I want to see another argument. I want to see another debate. Or I want to see another miracle. Or maybe he'll top last week's miracle with a new miracle. And maybe he's going to go in and he's going to conquer Rome and restore Israel to its rightful place as the dominant kingdom. So everybody had their own agenda for following Jesus, but... If you're going to follow Jesus, he gets to set the agenda. And that's what the sermon's really about today. So it's important we do this this time of year because I get caught up in all of the hoopla as well. I love it. Love all the traditions. You know, even though some of them you're like, that's not even biblical. In fact, that was borrowed from the pagans. But we Christianized it. And... One year, my family, because my mom was really sick, she had said, we're just not going to do all the usual stuff this year and just keep it simple. And bless her, her, her health just couldn't tolerate all the decorating, all the... And, uh, and you know, it was the most beautiful... No, it wasn't. It was like 
<laughs> didn't feel like Christmas at all because my heart wasn't in the right place. I was a kid, and to me, Christmas was all about all the presents and cookies and all the traditions. Fine things, but not very good ultimate things, are they? And then you have that feeling of letdown after Christmas. Christmas is a time to usher in, usher in the advent of God in human flesh. And so we should be using this time to remind ourselves of what it truly means to follow Christ. What He's done for us. What the, why this is so huge. Why it makes a difference. Why it's the most important event in human history. Why it's leading up to maybe the, the most important event in human history. That this baby came to live a perfect life and die in our place. But not stay dead. To, to rise again. Nobody's done that before. Or since. And so this morning we're going to consider two things, two considerations if you want to follow Jesus from Jesus' own mouth. Before I get there, though, I wanted to say a word about last week's sermon. I had some questions regarding a very difficult text. Remember, if you were here last week, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must hate basically your family. And we were like, whoa, whoa hate your family. Wait, doesn't God tell us to love people, even our enemies? Yes, he does. And we saw that this word hate has a different shade of meaning in that context. God wants us to love God and love God's agenda more than the world's agenda, even if the world is our own family. And so in the sense of we're to prefer God over anyone standing in the way of us following Christ were to hate that person. It's not really the person you're hating, it's them getting in the way of you following Jesus. In the same way that God said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, God preferred Jacob over Esau. So we're not to hate family. So the question was then, okay, I, I think I get it, Pastor, but how then do I interact with family or coworkers or friends who are interfering with my walk with Christ? How do I love my enemies? How do I pull that off? And so here's the key I want to give you. Very easy thing to remember, very hard... To live out in a world where we've been convinced wrongly that to love me is to accept everything about me. To love me is to accept everything about me. This is not a biblical definition of love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, ugly, wretched, haters of God, enemies of God, love sin more than righteousness, Christ died for us. That's love. That's love. So you can love 
people who are created in the image of God love them because they're created in the image of God, but you can reject their false ideas, their false agenda. You can even reject their false self-identity, and that's a buzzword in our culture right now, right? I self-identify as fill in the blank. That's my right to say this is who I am, and you have to love me for who I say that I am. Even if what you're choosing to do is sinful, against God, and bad for you in the long run. Beloved, the Bible gives us permission, no, not just permission, commands us to love people above and beyond their demands. If someone says, no, 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 this is the way I want to be loved, you have to love them more than they love themselves. If they truly love themselves in Christ, they would love what Christ says is true about you. They've settled for a cheap imposter of who they really are. They're following the devil. They're following their own agenda. They're following their own rules. And yes, this is going to cause friction. This is going to cause us to butt heads. But you do it winsomely, humbly, graciously, lovingly. Well, you don't love me then. So, no, I am loving you. I'm loving you the way God has told me to love, and He is love. You know, one thing you can tell people to help them maybe see the light here is you say, okay. If that's the definition of love, if I'm only loving if I love people the way they demand to be loved, then you must love the ideas I'm sharing with you right now. Right? It's a two-way street. Two can play at this game. Well, I reject your ideas. They're hateful. They're bigoted. They're homophobic. They're whatever label they throw at you. Oh, well, then you're a hater. Because... By your definition, you must love me for what I believe, not for what I am. See, we're loving people for their essence. They're made in the image of God. That's their essence. So I hope that helps. See, you're you're choosing to hate in the sense that I will not make a false peace with people under the guise of love when it's not really love. You must love one another the way God has commanded us to love one another. Accept the person, reject their ideas. Even if they say, well, you've rejected me. No, you're not the sum total of your ideas because your ideas change. You can show them a better way to love the way Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me show you a more excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Take them to the biblical definition of love. So I I hope that helps you. Part of being a follower of Christ. We must love that way. 
You've got to get over your fear of, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want the world to be like, oh, they're a Christian. That's their loss, if that's their attitude. How are we going to present a compelling gospel if we're like, yeah, you're right, I'm kind of embarrassed about that Christianity's not cool or it's narrow-minded or... No, don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Let me read the text coming up now. Jesus is going to use three parables to drive home a point and frankly drive away any pseudo-disciples, faux-disciples, fake-disciples. Luke 14, starting with verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Gee, that right there is going to drive people away. We're so comfortable with that phraseology as Christians. But in that day and age, what did it mean to pick up your cross? To carry the instrument of your own execution a very shameful execution. So shameful that Rome had a law against executing Roman citizens by crucifixion. No matter how horrible of a criminal you were, if you were a Roman citizen, you were, would not be executed by crucifixion. It was adding insult to injury to the nth degree. Naked, laid bare, suffering in front of gawking humanity. And it was long and slow and painful. But if you want to be my disciple, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless... With what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus adds that line at the end that was common at the end of his parables. Because, remember, parables were a way to clarify teaching to true believers and a way to hide the truth from those who didn't want to hear truth. If you have ears to hear, you will be able to make sense of the parable. If God has given you eyes to see, you will see the truth and you will adjust your life accordingly. For those who had no intention in their hearts of following Christ, these stories make no sense. You, as followers of Christ, though, these stories are so instructive for us. 
Let's start where he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We heard this earlier in Luke chapter 9, but it came off this way. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So here's where we're going today. A true disciple of Christ, a true follower of Christ, must follow Christ according to Christ's demands. You don't get to determine how you're going to follow him. Jesus says, follow me. Okay, but I'm going to follow over here. No, follow me. Do as I do. Think as I think. Believe as I believe. Love as I love. Well, how long do we have to do this? This is hard. Daily. And all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Count the cost. Can you finish the tower? All the way to the end. These are the two elements. Are you willing to follow Christ daily? And will you do it all the way to the end? We call this lordship salvation. Lordship. Making Christ your Lord. Well, I want to get out of hell. Hey, so do I. But that's not the prize. That's not the prize. The prize is God himself. A right relationship with God. True followers of Christ die to self daily because they've come to realize and understand that what I was living for was leading to death. So I'm not going to follow Christ in such a way that I take all the stuff I had before Christ and I bring it with me. And, and I add Christ to the pile. You don't add Christ to the pile. You trade in the pile for Christ. And then this side of heaven you live for his glory. And you know what? Some of the things in your life look like the old pile. But you're using those things in completely different ways now because they're not your God anymore. They're not the end-all, be-all of your existence. So it's not a call to go live as a hermit, cloistered away, blocking yourself off from humanity. Which really isn't the problem in our context. Here in America, our problem seems to be more that, hey, can't I live like everybody else and maybe just cut out the really bad stuff? I don't use profanity anymore. Well, what else does it mean to follow Christ? That's it. I cleaned up my language. That's it. Christ died for you so you didn't... Wouldn't you use salty language anymore? I guess, I guess it's a start. 
And people have their list of things that they, that they gave up. And they don't understand their salvation. Because they're like, I think I've given up enough to be a real Christian. That's the wrong attitude. Completely wrong attitude. Christ did everything for us on the cross so that we could be transformed from the inside out. And yes, there will be real changes in our life, but it won't be a, have I made enough changes now for God to be happy with me? Remember, He died for you before you even knew you needed to make changes. So this is a sermon that's calling for change, but it's calling for change for the right reasons. So parable number one, consideration number one, are you willing to follow him to the end? For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? We've got lots of builders in this church. Or maybe you've done a home renovation. I've been to those homes where they got halfway through the project and ran out of funds. It happens. Eventually they finish the project and it's beautiful. But every once in a while there's that house on uh, Woodford Tehachapi. I don't know if somebody owns that house here. I don't want to insult you. But I, I, I think of this passage every time I drive by it. It's got the big beautiful turret and I'm like, it's weathering. They're going to have to like tear it down and start over soon. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there was a terrible tragedy. Maybe they did have the funds. I don't know. I don't want to jump to conclusions. I'm just saying it's a good picture of what Jesus is teaching here. Even more embarrassing in an honor-shame culture... To start a tower, you're halfway done and you can't finish it. And everyone, every time they pass it, oh, hey, Daddy, what's going on with that tower? Oh, that's Moses's or Joe or John. Everyone told him he didn't have enough to finish, but he wouldn't listen. And what do you do with half a tower? You can't sell it. You can't liquidate those assets. You can't get your investment back. Now remember with parables, you don't take every little aspect of the parable and turn it into some spiritual truth. What's the point? Count the cost. Make sure you're willing to go the distance. So spiritually, before we whip everyone up into a frenzy and get them to make a decision for Christ... You've got to sit down with them in a moment of quiet, sobriety, thinking straight. Are you willing to go the distance? Count the cost. Well, what's it going to cost me? Do I, I have to start going to church on Sunday? Oh, dear. Wrong question. <laughs> well, I'm going to lose out on my Sunday mornings. They're going to expect me to put some money in the basket, huh? Okay. Right? This is the wrong, the wrong list. So when people ask you, well, what, what's the cost of following Christ? You tell them, okay, ready for this? It costs everything. 
you have. Everything. But none of that buys your salvation. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me explain. Jesus paid it all on the cross because no one has enough money or good deeds or righteousness to buy their way into heaven. That's the good news. And say, oh, I see. The bad news is I have to give up everything. No, that's also the good news. Because it turns out all that stuff that you're hanging on to doesn't satisfy. Doesn't satisfy. There's a whole another spiritual life that goes on for eternity and this stuff, you can't take it with you. So, yes, it costs you everything, but you get everything. Well, wait a minute, I just gave up everything. How do I get everything? You get everything that truly matters. You get everything that truly matters. It's, it's a great deal. But you gotta, you got to count the cost. And people every once in a while come and they say, hey, how come we don't have altar calls every Sunday? Not that altar calls are bad. We're supposed to invite. But there became a period of time in evangelicalism where the altar call became the, okay, well, here it comes. Crank up the music. Get everyone whipped up into a frenzy. Emotional frenzy. And tell them to make a decision for Christ right there on the spot. And we're not leaving until somebody does. And you may have responded to an altar call. And that may be the moment you were saved. And I don't want to diminish your salvation experience. But look at our Lord here. He had crowds following him. And he's, he's basically saying, hey, you want to follow me? You're going to have to die to yourself. Daily. Okay, I'm ready. Uh-uh, you're not ready yet. You go, you go count the cost. Think through what this is going to mean. And in this culture, I may lose my family. I might lose my friends. I might lose my business. I might lose my life. Yeah, that's right. But here's the deal. You thought you had life, and you don't. Leave all that behind and follow me and you will truly have life and you'll have life abundantly. So count the cost. And when you realize what you're truly getting in Christ, then it doesn't seem so costly. You know, another good analogy with all these fires going on is how many people truly had to determine what's really important to them in life. Maybe some people who lost their homes in the fire, God is going to use to show them that they have a chance to gain everything. To to gain everything. All I have is Jesus now, and you have everything. The rest is just accoutrements.
That's why he says you have to be willing to give up all your possessions. He's not saying go and sell everything because then you'll be poor and we're supposed to help the poor. So you're just becoming one of the poor. It's seeing your possessions in the right light with the right perspective. They're not your God. They're not ultimate. They don't satisfy. So we're going to lay a foundation on Christ and his truth and build this tower. And it's, our life is this tower that's going to bring glory and honor to God, not glory and honor to me. So count the cost. Are you willing to follow him to the end? Isn't the Christian landscape unfortunately littered with lots of people who didn't count the cost? And it's a reproach on the name of Christ. It's, it's embarrassing to his name. Hey, isn't that Joe? I thought he was some Christian. Remember? Oh, yeah, he's the one who would go around the office telling everyone, you know, to clean up their act and how we're all a bunch of pagans. Well, whatever happened to him? Oh, he ran off with someone else's wife. <sighs> Didn't count the cost. I often point to this parable when I'm doing premarital counseling. Count the cost. Oh, I did. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. (laughs) You need to die to yourself every day, both of you. In sickness and in health. Even when it doesn't seem fun. Or they're not being as cute. and, Or what seemed cute when you were dating suddenly has become annoying. <laughs> Quirky can turn obnoxious real fast. <laughs> oh, he's doing that thing again. Oh, he's doing that thing again. <laughs> Count the cost. What are you getting in this for? Is it your own personal happiness? Or... To glorify God. Completely different motives. Count the cost. We're going we're gonna to ha- start a family and have kids. Have you counted the cost? <laughs> Literally, right? Emotionally, physically. Are you ready to see this thing all the way to the end? And it ain't when they turn 18. But if you see it as the blessing that it is, then you'll say yes. Even when it's hard and you need a reminder, yes. Yes, stick, stick with it. This is a good thing. God says it's a good thing. Even when I don't feel like it's a good thing, it's a good thing. But you have to count the cost. Consideration number two, then, Are you willing to surrender on his terms of peace? So he uses this king meeting another king on the battlefield and the king realizes he's he's, uh, overmatched. There's no way he's winning this battle. Isn't that beautiful imagery? Because that's like we're our own king. We want our own kingdom. and, And coming to Christ is, oh, there's another king? Yeah. No, there's only one king and a bunch of would be, wannabe kings. That's us. Or we could look at it this way, the way the Bible shows us, is that there's Christ and Antichrist. 
there's the true king and the poser, Satan. And anyone who's trying to be their own king is really following Satan. That's so hard to stomach. Well, I'm not a Satan worshiper. By definition, if you're not worshiping God, that's your king. And God wants the worship for himself and the glory for himself where it rightly belongs. Satan will settle for you glorifying yourself. That's fine in his kingdom. As long as people aren't worshiping the true God, Satan's happy with that. Now, again, don't get caught up in the details of the parable because it, 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 it's not like God's only twice as big as our army. <laughs> They're just round numbers. It's just something everybody would understand. You take an army out, the opposing army comes, you do a head count, and you go, uh-oh, we are outnumbered. We should strike a deal. The thing is, when you strike a deal and you're the smaller, less powerful army, you don't get to negotiate the terms of surrender. The more powerful king is the king. And he determines the terms of peace. So are you willing to surrender to his terms of peace? Because I see far too many people who say, yeah, I want to do this Christianity thing. But on my terms, I want to keep this, I want to keep this, I want to keep this, I don't, I don't want to get rid of this, I don't want to change this. And again, it's like they're adding Jesus to their pile. He's not an add-on. He's not an app. It's not like we have our shopping cart and we clicked on Jesus. And maybe we'll stick with them at the checkout. I'm trying to use as much Christmas commercialism imagery as I can here. This, too, is a reproach on the name of Christ. If you're only following Jesus to get a better life, and not following Jesus because it's the only path to life. Then he says, don't bother following me. I'm not here to just give you a little bit better life. I'm here to give eternal life. There was a controversy in evangelicalism oh, about 40 years ago of the lordship controversy. Lordship salvation controversy. So the idea was you could lead people to a saving relationship with Jesus and then later, hopefully, they would decide to make him Lord. But passages like this one and others make it clear that Jesus says, I will not be your Savior until I'm your Lord. Because what is he saving us from? Wanting to be our own Lord. So if you're offering the gift of salvation to people, what's he saving me from? You want him to be your own Lord. Well, how do I get saved then? Acknowledge that you're not Lord. Repent, turn from that, and follow Jesus as Lord. 
What do I do with all this guilt from living like my own Lord all these years? Hey, he took care of it on the cross. He paid for all of that rebellion. He paid for it. You get the pardon. It's not like one of these cheap presidential pardons we see where right before they go out of office, they just pardon all their cronies. This pardon was paid for in full with the blood of Jesus. Amen. Nobody could take it away from you, but the terms of surrender are, I am guilty of being my own Lord. So you can't say Jesus is my Savior, but I'm still my own Lord. Now, we understand that God is gracious and merciful and that this the, the exchange of power, as it were, happens gradually in our sanctification. Anyone who says, yeah, the day I was saved, I stopped being my own Lord and I, and I never tried to be my own Lord a day since. Oh, come on. I doubt your salvation then. You don't know your own sinfulness. Now, if you said, on the day I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, I acknowledged that I needed to stop being my own Lord, and Jesus became my Lord and Savior that day, but you know what? There's a lot of days I try to kick him off the throne. How foolish of me. Well, that sounds like a Christian. So we're not preaching perfection, and then I can be a Christian. Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't. You're acknowledging that I, I want to follow him to the end and he's my Lord. And Lord, help me to make that a reality in my life each day in every aspect of my life. Teach me to count the cost in the workplace. Count the cost in my marriage. Count the cost in my parenting. Count the cost in my friendships. You see, it ends up being a whole different life. You go to work now not to climb the ladder. You go to work because God says work is good. Glorify me in your work. Put, put food on the table and see your co-workers as your mission field. That, that's, that's a whole different perspective. And so sometimes a Christian in some ways won't look different than a non-Christian. We all get up in the morning. We all go to work. But we're going to work for completely different reasons. And your life becomes about glorifying God and making other disciples. And so the money you make isn't just to put food on the table or buy the next grown-up toy. You're saying, this is God's money I'm going to invest this in the kingdom. I'm going to get involved in the life of missionaries. I'm going to support them. I'm going to give sacrificially to my church because, you know what? This place doesn't run on its own. And you're like, oh, I know. Like these seats, though, you know, I don't want... My money to go to seats and chairs. I want it to go to important things. Look, let God sort out where all the money's going. Keep the church accountable to staying in line with the mission of God. Are we reaching souls? Are we making disciples? Are we glorifying God? Or is this a country club? 
So if it becomes a country club, I don't blame you for not wanting to put your money here. But I don't think we are. Praise God. And your house becomes this evangelistic headquarters. Every little family becomes an evangelistic unit, a missionary unit. We're inviting people over. Why? Because it's fun to have people over. Yes, it is, but have them over with a higher purpose. We might do devotions together. Maybe it's an unbelieving family and we're building relationships and maybe hearing a prayer to bless the meal. Maybe they've never heard that before. Maybe they've never seen family worship. Hey, we're going we're gonna to read a, a, a little Christmas uh, devotion. Book we're reading, the devotions are like two and a half pages. Maybe you want the, the shorter one when they're over, <laughs> if they're unbelievers. You're living your life for a much different purpose now. That's the terms of surrender. You don't become a Christian, say you're following Jesus, and then just go right back to your regular old secular life. That doesn't make any sense at all. And in case there was any confusion about this, Jesus gets really clear about it in no uncertain terms. Therefore, salt is good. Salt was used for seasoning food and as a preservative. But even salt, if salt's become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? So in my study, I found out that salt from the Dead Sea becomes contaminated with gypsum sometimes. And doesn't taste very good. And it's no good as a preservative. And it won't decompose, so it's no good as fertilizer or the manure pile. So you've got this big pile of useless salt. What do you do with it? It's utterly useless. This is um, exaggeration for effect. We, get, we hear you, Jesus. See, he knows that it will be our temptation to just kind of live enough of the Christian life that we can convince ourselves that we're salt, that we're useful in some way. But Jesus is saying, look, you either follow me completely or you're good for nothing. There's no just sticking a toe into the pool of Christianity. You, you dive in or you stay out of the pool. It's pretty harsh language or tough language, ultimate language. But he's leaving no question, no escape hatch, no back door, no loophole for anyone who says, well, can't I follow Christ, kind of? No, because you're missing the whole blessing. It wasn't my life's already pretty good. I I just need a you know, the cherry on top. No, you're headed for death. Jesus is life. 
you take the whole thing. Remember the parable he, he teaches about the man who finds a treasure in a field and he looks around he's like, nobody knows it's in here. I got to have that field. Not because the field was great, because the treasure was in the field. And so what does he do? He goes and he sells everything he has, liquidates his assets so he can buy the field and now I own the treasure. Right? Too many people want to live Christianity like this. Well, I want the field and all my other assets. This is good. This is good. This is good. That's pretty good too. No, the surpassing value of knowing God and being known by God and having peace between you and God far exceeds everything else that giving up all that stuff is, is a small thing compared to getting Christ. This is what it means to pick up your cross daily, daily, and follow him. I love this passage. It's a good one to close on. With Christmas coming, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because when you go to count the cost, if you don't fix your eyes on the prize, then the cost seems too great. Oh man, I kind of have to give all that up. That's a lot. I've been working my whole life for all this stuff. For my career, for my reputation. I, I, I could lose all that. But when you realize what the prize is, then the cost seems very small. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, speaking to all the faithful saints that have gone before us, other people have done this Christian walk. We're not the first Christians on the planet here in the 21st century. Read a good Christian biography this year. Surround yourself with people who are walking better than you are. I'm excited about the, some of the new elders that are coming on because I'm like, these guys are going to inspire me to step up my game. You know, I love counseling people, but if you only disciple other people and you're not discipled, you, how are you going to grow? So surround yourself with the great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How could he, how could he give it all up his glory and become a man and 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 die on this this, this horrible because he saw what was on the other side of the cross. That's what you got to do, beloved. You got to see what's on the other side of denying yourself and picking up your cross. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to make sure that all these wonderful feelings you're experiencing don't fade away on December 26th, fix your eyes on Jesus. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that his words are hard, that he didn't attempt the soft sell to lure us into the kingdom, but he was frank, he was upfront, he was clear. We don't have to guess. 
We don't have to wonder if we've done enough because he's done it all. And he's calling us to give up everything. Help us to understand that it is a small price to pay, Lord, for gaining you. In your name we pray, amen.